Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. In the new horror film, From the Shadows, two professors linked to a supernatural cult played by Bruce Davison and Keith David. Yeah, they got the casting. Uh, they've disappeared, and the cult survivors, a group of five college kids, are on the run from mysterious shadow people. They enlist the aid of a paranormal debunker, Dr. Amara Brown, played exquisitely in this project by Selena Andrews. And the whole movie takes place, virtually all of it, via a Zoom-like platform where the main characters interact. And as these young people try to convince the skeptical doctor... They begin to be picked off one by one in rather gruesome ways. But the the format mixes smartphone footage, <laughs> computer conference footage, and some traditional narrative to present this tale. It's a, it's a cult horror picture about cults. It's blessed to have music by John Carpenter's frequent composer Alan Howorth and outstanding performances from Bruce Davison and our next guests. I am so thrilled to welcome these two artists to this program. Uh, one of our finest actors, multiple Emmy Award winner and Tony nominee. He just won the NAACP Image Award uh, for the series from scratch and so many great credits on Broadway, of course, and the revivals of August Wilson's Seven Guitars and Jelly Last Jam. But films, my God, Platoon, John Carpenter's The Thing, Requiem for a Dream, Something About Mary, Spike Lee's Clockers, The Princess and the Frog, my kid's favorite film, and of course, one of our greatest voiceover actors from the voice of Spawn to some of our favorite Ken Burns documentaries, especially Unforgivable Blackness, uh, Mr. Keith David, and Selena Andrews, who has a dazzling resume, including Marvel's WandaVision and Venom, Hulu's Candy, DC's Swamp Thing series, and she's a frequent collaborator with Mike Flanagan, including the excellent Steve King sequel to The Shining, Dr. Sleep, and Netflix's The Haunting of Hill House. I'm sorry the intros were so long, but your resumes command it. Selena Andrews and Keith David, welcome <laughs> to SiriusXM. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having Thank me. You. <laughs> Thank you. And thanks to, the, uh, thanks to the supernatural power of SAG waivers, I'm so happy to be talking to both of you about any project. So I'm most grateful. Um, it's nice watching you both have fun in a horror film like this. I never knew rebuffering during a Zoom conference could be so scary. You're, you're, you're in the same movie, but you both had very different experiences in terms of production. And I, I'd like to ask you about that because... Selena, your experience is like FaceTime Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, I, I'm I'm fascinated by what your production experience was like. The presentation of everything is taking place over a video chat for almost all of the film. How do you begin to prepare for a shoot like this? 
You know, it's funny. I I had no time to prepare whatsoever, actually. <laughs> and I think that was that was um, a, a good thing because I came onto the film last uh, onto the project as as the last actor, and I stepped in when they had already been filming, uh, and and it was less than twelve hours before I was shooting my first like five scenes. So it was wonderful <laughs> for me because. I was literally just thrown in and um, you jump on, on a Zoom call and there are the kids and I had never seen them before. So it was very authentic for me where it's like, okay, I know I'm here to do this. I'm here to debunk it. I'm here to um, try and, and, and coax their stories out of them. And it just, it worked beautifully for me. I mean, your your job is is playing the skeptical doctor, but waiting for these attractive young people to be gruesomely killed. What what was the rehearsal process like? Were, you were never actually in the room with your fellow performers when rehearsing, were you? Correct. Nope. Never in the room with them. No table which, read. Which was awesome. It, it yeah. just made it very real, you know? Yeah. And the more real they can make it for us, the easier it is for us to do our job, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm I'm very curious. I want to ask both of you about rehearsal, but but what was the rehearsal process like? I understand you rehearsed it on a Friday and then shot like 63 pages of script on a Monday. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think we were we were filming on the weekend, and uh, I know I by the time I landed to film uh, and made it to set, it was like midnight on Friday. And then my next, the first five scenes were starting at like six o'clock in the morning. So it was a very quick, um, Hey, we've got to get this amount done. This is what we're behind by three days. So you don't really have time to think you just have time to tell the story. And that's ultimately what we are. We're storytellers. So where did, where did you that shoot? was a lot of fun. What was that? Where did you shoot? In New Jersey. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Because, like, even Keith and I, we, we didn't even meet while we were shooting the film. <laughs> really? You're two of the few actors who appear in the same room in this movie. And it's amazing that you right. weren't actually in the same room when shooting the scenes. And it's amazing how they made that work because it was like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, COVID was still COVID was still in pretty full swing when y'all shot this, though not at its peak. And as with most, you know, moderately budgeted independent films, I know you had a very limited amount of time. You had about two weeks to get through this whole thing. And so much of this is reaction shots from you. So much of this is you staring into a screen. I, I don't think the yeah. average film fan, even a horror fan, appreciates the technical skill that go into that and the focus that's required to sit there essentially in front of a lens reacting to people that aren't there <laughs> how, how how many days did you spend shooting it and how did you maintain your focus because the scenes in here are rather tense i'm gonna i'm gonna let you go ahead with that one <laughs> how you long know, were you how long did you work on it i worked on it for the weekend wow i had one i had one weekend to shoot all my scenes Right. And, uh, and, and I mean, it was amazing. You know, you come in early in the morning, you know what it is. And, it, and, and I had a four hour makeup job. That's what I wanted to ask about. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, your, 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 so your makeup I, job I here. Get very... You, you, when your character sort of shows up in the third act, um, your, 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 well, your face is melted, sir. It's terrifying, but I, I know that the makeup That's what artist. That's happens when you try to squeeze through, you know, uh, time zones and barriers. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I read uh, somewhere the makeup artist on this film, Vince Gastini, said he got into special effects because he loved the thing as a kid. And, and I'm curious what it was like to have a four hour makeup job at 4 a.m. to melt your face. You know, I loved it. I mean, you know, it, it's um, when you especially as you watch the layering of the transformation, you know, it starts out with this little piece here and then it starts up Then you get the, then you put on the bigger piece and then you go to, you know, I mean, it's like, wow. And um, especially because the um, that whole face thing is re- is based on something that really does happen to human beings. I mean, there are human, there are people who look just like that in everyday life. It's it's a viral yes. infection or something that happens. And it's like when you when you when you know he showed me the picture of the guy that it was based on, I was like, whoa. Now, you know, in our last interview we talked about horror stories in life, you know, yes. uh, uh, and how sometimes these stories can reflect. But I mean I don't know what I would have said to this man if I'd met him in person. Yeah. I mean, because it's, it's it's like the elephant man. You cannot help but be like, how does that happen? Yeah. You know, I mean. Uh, Although actual victims, actual victims of the disease don't have red glowing eyes, which you had in your favor for this one. Well, that's I I mean, that's true. I got to ask, Keith, what is it at at this point in your career? What is it that makes you say yes to a a script? And and what appealed to you about this character? I I, I really dug the story. You know, I like playing. um, I also like playing smart people. I mean, you know, he's you know, I mean, you know, you know, there's there's so many times when, you know, especially as a black man, you can get easily stereotyped into uh, being less than, you know, uh, that level of intelligent. Uh, but here's a guy who's on the top of his game. And yeah. I I especially loved, um, you know, butting heads with Bruce Davidson. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like, dude, what are you doing? You know, stop. <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, and, but also starting, you know, you know, having started from the same place. I love that, you know, the little pack up saying, listen, dude, I'm not listening to you anymore. You need to stop this shit. You know, I'm not, yeah. I'm not participating and I'm not even going to talk to you about it, you know, because, you know, many, you know, that's, you know, that kind of rift is, you know, uh, you know, our world is filled with that. Sure. I mean, let me ask one company, one company becomes another company. I just, you know, I mean, uh, I just heard a story last night about how that's how Solo overtook Dixie Cup. There was a rift. How so? Now you you have to back that up. Tell me. (laughs) Uh, I don't don't know. I don't know the whole story, so I don't want to start any ugly rumors, Uh, you know, but. (laughs) Oh, the guy that started the guy. I was thinking, the guy that started solo, you know, began working with Dixie Cups. Okay, okay, I see. I mean, in this case, yeah, you you and Bruce Davison are are partners uh, as scientists, and as he increasingly becomes mad scientist cult leader, you are the voice of reason until you're not. And um, until I'm not, 
you get to do some uh, terrifically evil things in this film. And as someone who loves watching you play a villain, and you've played many diverse kinds, you can't really put Princess of the Frog and Requiem for a Dream in the same universe of villainry. But at this point, how how do you approach such a malevolent character? I've never seen you play evil. I've always seen you playing what the character's true needs are. But how do you find the humanity of a butcher? Well, you know, everybody... Everybody has a mama, you know, and at, at some point, at some point, no matter how evil you are perceived in this moment, you are not always that way or you cannot always be that way. I mean, that's one of the things I loved about Tony Soprano. You know, he could be a nasty dude, but he wasn't like that with his wife. He wasn't yeah. like that with his girlfriend, yeah. you know, um, Somebody, you know, he wasn't like that with his kids. You know, yeah. you know, you know, you have to find, you know, I mean, I, you have to find, I, I believe you just have to find the humanity in whoever you play. Sometimes, and sometimes it means embracing somebody who's absolutely dastardly. You know, I yes. mean, I, I also love playing evil guys who are just blatantly unapologetic. Yes, it's fun to watch you, know, you do it. Because those people, those people, you know, we'd like to think that they don't. But, you know, they do exist. You know, I mean, if you if you believe in the devil and the sons of Beelzebub, he does his job very well. They're out there. They're out there trying to get you. And it's, yes. your, it's your job to maintain your deep belief in the God of your understanding. Because there's so many there's so many forces and this is where you get into, I mean, it took me a long time to understand what uh, what was meant by principalities. There are, you know, there are forces beyond your control who ain't on your side. And you have to, you know, you're in, 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 in uh, the maturation process growing up is for you to discern who that is and when that is. I know a few forces that are not on our side uh, on the side of the studios and the negotiations right now, actually. And they're children of Beelzebub, too. Well, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, less. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let, let me ask you the same they, question, they, though, they, so, because, Selena, you signed on for this project and it was an incredibly intense amount of work with virtually no prep time. What appealed to you about this character in this particular film? I love that. Again, you know, I got to play something that wasn't a stereotype. She's very yeah. smart, and she was coming from a wound uh, where she she lost her mom to a cult, and and I was like, ooh, that's something interesting. I've never gotten to do that before. And um, on top of that, I knew I'd be playing with both Keith and Bruce, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is heaven. Are you kidding me? This, absolutely, absolutely, I'll, I'll sign on. And uh, that's honestly all I, I knew. That's all they gave me <laughs> before <laughs> before I stepped onto set. I was like, okay, sure. I, I think I read uh, about half of the script on the plane, and I was like, oh, this is gonna be fun. And I didn't even get to the other half of the script until until I was you know halfway through filming. So I mean, yeah. I it's you both elevate every scenes you're in. It's a pleasure watching you, and I can tell you're having fun in this project. Can, can I ask you, Selena, about your uh, your background? Because I understand you're you're everything, right? You're part First Nations, part Caribbean, part Jewish, part Puerto Rican. Yes. Anything, <laughs> and, and what? And, and, yes, and, and, uh, but more than that, right? 
Yeah, I, I am so uh, privileged to be mixed race. And with that comes stories from many peoples. So I, yes. as I was growing up in the Caribbean, we are very, very uh, story centric in how we are raised. And um, same thing with, with Indigenous American, they're very story centric. Uh, they just yes. use nature to do it. So of course, you know, it's, it's natural for me to, to become, I like to think of it as a healer through storytelling, you know, helping I us um, uh, focus and heal through the stories that we tell, whether it's horror, whether it's drama, whether it's comedy, all of these are emotions that help us reflect and understand humanity better so that we can um, work on those wounds. So that's that's what I was saying. Oh, this was an interesting wound to come from. Same thing that, that Keith was saying. Oh, a bad guy always, wasn't always a bad guy. There was a wound that happened. And, right. and that, what's more human than that? So for me, uh, I am very privileged to, to have um, contact with all of my different sides if you want to put it that way of my my ethnicities all all packed into one it's also why i prefer not to play a stereotype because i it's, exactly. it's being yeah it's being dishonest or not dishonest it's being um dismissive to the other parts of myself you know and i don't believe in in labeling or that we need to you know i, I told my my reps right off the bat i'm not playing a spicy Latina maid. I, I'm not doing that right, right. <laughs> um, because you're missing so much of the story, you know. And then, of course, we don't always get to to choose what auditions come to us, but uh, or what projects land in our lap. But at least if I can navigate the types of stories that I'd love to be a part of, then then by all means, I I jump at those opportunities. I, I told my reps I wasn't going to play any bland, interchangeable white guys. And they said, no, yes, you are. So um, I, I, I can't really relate. <laughs> Keith, I, I, I'm dying to ask you, um, are there any of your films or performances that are especially close to your heart? And are there any films you've worked on that you wish had gotten more notice and acclaim? Um, yeah. Um, Dead Presidents. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, was I, I think was 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 a really wonderful, wonderfully made film, and you know, as we as we navigate our way through um, our pseudo free society, you know, I mean, what I, what I mean by that is, you know, you'd like to think that our society is free of racism, but it isn't because that was the year that there were no black people nominated for any Oscar. That is correct. In That's any correct. in any way, shape, or form, there were no people of color. That's right. Uh, represented in any of the Oscars. Now you know that ain't just coincidental. That's because there are just too many. There there, there are too many. There are too many. There are too many films uh, and performances where there you know people of color are represented. You know, um it's systemic. But that was that was one that really resonates with me because I you know, I loved that character. <laughs> yeah. Um uh, but and 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 uh I can say yeah. Uh it, 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 you know sometimes sometimes when you embrace a character he stays with you a, a little bit. Uh you know you I, I like to think you learn something from every character. Kirby stayed with me a little longer than I would have liked, but <laughs> wow! Everyone's going to go watch that again. But now. Lot, Good, you know, but but actually, for you know, for different reasons. You know, I mean, you know, 
you know, I, you know, uh, uh, I grew up with my stepfather and, and there was nine, 90% of Kirby was my kind of, uh, channeling him as a younger man, right? you know, cause he was a, he was a, uh, he was a World War II vet. And, uh, do you, I'm curious, I, do you I, have I, any, uh, you know, I, I love the performance. Uh, I, I gotta ask, do you have any singing dates coming up? Yes, I do, as a matter of fact. In fact, I'm singing tomorrow night. I'm doing a thing called Swing in the Mouse. And um, it, you, can, you, can, you can find it online. Um, we're, we're performing in uh, Thousand Oaks. And I'm, I'm, up, I'm off to rehearsal after this to uh, find out what the address is for where we're performing tonight. Is, I mean, is it Disney-related? Is it, is it uh, Disney-related? It's all these Disney songs that uh, Pablo Rosal has taken and jazzed up. So it's jazzing the mouse. Brilliant. So fun. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what Before I... So, and it's the first time out the movie that I get to sing Dr. Facilier's song. Oh, brilliant. About time. So um, he's going to go, go in my act from now. I know that you both have a lot to do and a lot of the more interviews coming up. Before I let you go, Selena, I know you've been on the Atlanta SAG after board. Do you have hope for the strike? I do. I do. I think that we've got a lot of very smart, very passionate uh, folks who are in communication and we all want what's best for everybody, um, especially, especially the actors. So I think the collaborations are, are happening. So I'm very hopeful. Very hopeful. The new horror film from the shadows is in theaters. Now it is worth seeing for the performances of our two guests, Keith, David and Selena Andrews. What a pleasure to have you both on the show. Please come back anytime just to talk about craft, whether you're allowed to promote stuff or not. Thank you so much for joining us on Sirius XM. Thank you. I appreciate you. All right. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back. So we've had a lot of great musicians on this program from Brian Wilson to Willie Nelson to Rakim. Uh, I am so thrilled and delighted to welcome this next guest who has meant so much to so many lovers of music. Phil Selway is best known to you guys as the drummer of one of the greatest bands in the world, Radiohead, inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2019. Mr. Selway has also had a very creative solo career, releasing albums and a terrific soundtrack, collaborating with members of Wilco, developing his own guitar playing and songwriting. Having said that, Nothing will prepare you for the ethereal gorgeousness of his new solo album, Strange Dance. This record is melodic and melancholic. The arrangements are full-bodied. The lyrics and vocals are so open-hearted. It's made with a cast of collaborators that include Portishead's guitarist Adrian Utley, and there's even a live album soon to be released. It is a tremendous pleasure to welcome Phil Selway to Sirius XM. Oh, fantastic. Thank you, John. Well, thank you. Um, I, I wasn't ready for the sonic beauty of this record. It's like a beautiful marriage between electronic and acoustic music, and it's all in service of a very deep and, dare I say, hopeful and 
loving songcraft and i'm i'm fascinated by how you developed the tracks on this record were were these songs fully formed in your mind or are you at a place where the songcraft comes first and the sound of it is to be discovered in studio in some ways the sound of it was there beforehand or at least the, the scope of of the soundscape if you like kind of when i first started thinking about it i had this um kind of like fantasy collaboration in my head where Carol King got to do, as I say, this fantasy album with Daphne Oram, yes. who was kind of like one of the electronic pioneers in, in the UK. Um, and that they'd uh, then invite me along to come and drum on the album. And so that was kind of that set up for kind of like the sonic uh, possibilities of it, really. And within that, so I knew I wanted this soundscape that would be kind of, you know, broad and tall and would envelop you you could almost like walk around in it yes and within that i had a good idea of the, the musical voices that i wanted in there and they're very kind of people that i've been um collaborating with uh over the course of my solo work so there was uh, an amazing multi-instrumentalist called quinta who i've done a lot of work with um Adrian Utley mm -hmm. from Portishead, as you say um and then um Valentina Magaletti, yes. who is incredible percussionist. Now, she wasn't originally in the plan because part of my original fantasy was I'd be invited in to do the drumming. <laughs> and uh, and I did that for a day, but it just wasn't happening. So at that point, I kind of pulled the plug on myself, had a quiet word and uh, <laughs> set myself packing. Yeah, that's mm. the part I find fascinating, that, that it's your record. And you decided in the production to not do your own drumming. Yeah. Uh, I'm very curious, what was your process with her? How, how did you coach on this? Did you, did you let her figure out what she wanted to do? Or did you have a sense of where you wanted the beats to go? Um, I had a, an idea of the textures that I wanted in there. And, um, and then Valentina came in. I kind of approach it from very much, if you're asking somebody to come in, because of what they do musically, because of their musical voice, and actually you give them free reign. Um, and, you know, you have that, that kind of constant back and forth, uh, as in all collaboration, but actually it's essentially their musical voice that you want to come through in it. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, Valentina didn't really need any coaching whatsoever. Um, she well, I would, should have said direction, I guess. Um, Again, it's, you know, I'd, I'd been listening to her work and, and knew what she could bring to it. Yes. Um, and then so, I mean, she works so quickly, you know, you, she, she would hear a song for, for the first time within about six, seven takes. She's built up this incredibly um, uh, singular and, and rich and, um, yeah, just these amazing... Um, percussive beds. And That's how then, you work, isn't it? That's how I've heard you described as working. Oh, well, I, I, I could aspire to that. <laughs> but it's interesting actually being in the studio with somebody who can, who, who has that vision, who has that uh, command of, of what she's doing. Um, yeah, it's really inspiring watching her. And then we have these incredible musical beds these percussive beds then to build the tracks up on on top of yeah i mean it sounds like you went through a tremendous creative experience both in the songwriting and then again in the studio 
Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the before I went into the studio, I wanted to make sure that the songs were in their basic form could be as developed as possible, and that they would actually kind of speak in that form. Um, and then, yes, then then it was phase two in the studio, and that's where the record really, really came to life. I, I love how you describe it as a collaboration between Carol King and Daphne Oram. I do hear a lot of Nick Drake in this, in both the songwriting and in your vocals. Has he been a guiding light for you? Uh, yes, he has been, really. I mean, I was kind of late to the party with Nick Drake, as I think a lot of... A lot of us were. Kind I'm of talking it. to an American. I know about that. Yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of mid '90s when I first um, came across his his music, but since then it's just kind of it went straight in, went straight to to the core, and uh, it's just one of those artists. I kind of you know you listen to it and you feel it kind of speaks to you and speaks for you as as well. And um, yes, I, I think that's. Uh, uh, yeah, he's he's featured a lot, but quite heavily in I think how I've kind of developed my my own kind of singing voice, my own uh, sense of where I'm going uh, as artistically as a solo artist as well. Um, and actually, with Nick Drake, they there was a, a really beautiful album released earlier this year called The Endless Cut. Coloured Ways, yes, which was pulling together a lot of artists doing um, Nick Drake covers. Uh, it's put pulled together by uh, Jeremy Lascelles and Callie uh, Callaman, who was who oversees the Nick Drake estate. And um, I was invited to to come and uh, go and do a track for that, which was just just blew my mind. Um, and so I chose a track off Brighter Later called Fly. Yes. And I had kind of, if there is a home demo version of Fly, um, which um, just is so touching, you know, it's uh, kind of recorded, must have been recorded on, on an old reel to reel, and you can hear the bird song in the background. It must have been fairly soon after you wrote the song, because you just get that immediacy of a song coming over. And so, I mean, that, I mean, it's one of my favorite pieces of music. Um, and, so I asked if I could do that song, and they agreed to it. And I was thinking, great. And then you think, oh, my God, that's quite a responsibility, isn't it? <laughs> um, and so I uh, approached um, people I'd been working on Strange Dance with and decided that actually I would approach it as if it was one of the songs that I'd written for, for Strange Dance. And, uh, and then so it kind of went through a similar process to the album. Um, and... Yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm kind of, it's there on this record in amongst this incredible company of, of, of other musicians. So, yeah, that, that was a, that was a pinch me moment. Really. Yeah, it, I hear the influence. There's, there's songwriting and, and vocals that are of Northern Sky levels of beauty on this record. And I, I have read some much. reviews that describe some of the tracks as bleak. Um, I, I hope you don't mind. I think this is as far from bleakness as a member of your other band can possibly get. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering, what did the pandemic lockdown period do for you creatively? Um, it was interesting how that fell. I mean, like on one side of it you know we'd decided uh as a band that we'd take that year off anyway 
before the pandemic happened. And so it was always going to be one of those periods in my head where I was going to kind of, you know, hole up in in my studio at home and try and find a way of, of writing this this record and so in a way uh you know you kind of go into a little bit of self-imposed lockdown when you do that sure so then to actually be in the situation where the whole world is going through that the same situation as well it was just uh it was just you know yeah it um it didn't radically change my plan for the year put it that way i mean it was it was lovely as well because you know i kind of had um all, the, all, all, all our kids moved back in for that period. So, you know, you're very much there in this kind of uh, very heightened emotional place. Deeply. And, um, and, and then kind of finding my way out into my studio, that was my space. And then you kind of then go out and you try and process all of these huge huge kind of uh emotions that are going on around you and um so that's kind of where that where the record really i mean i didn't want to write a record about lockdown but it seemed to be a very appropriate time for the record that i did want to write i think you really create that world and i know you worked with um marta Salogni as your producer yeah. who's worked with bjork and depeche mode and um she's a big fan of course of, of using the tape machine yeah as an instrument yes uh, what was that like for you in the studio it, it were a lot of tape machines in the in the control like room. it's yeah so i've <laughs> so i've read in the notes i mean it really seems like she just kept them running and yeah just um the tape loops of, of of your guitar and then and then just using them wherever they could be used absolutely and it's um it's a very immediate way of, of actually taking songs into a whole different realm very quickly um and that's kind of what i wanted to do with with the tracks and so it's a very inspiring place to start from um and then just hearing how everybody else would come into the studio and and respond to what marta was doing there kind of respond to their own ideas as well um yeah but it was uh, there were some very long tape loops running around the studio <laughs> at points it's just such a it's such a gorgeous blend of of just studio wizardry and basic strong beautiful songwriting my my favorite song on the record keeps shifting um this week it's the other side okay which seems like you're talking to a very specific person um what are you going to do when i meet you on the other side yeah do you do you i I, don't, I won't ask you to say who these songs are about but it seems like you're the songs do come from a deeply personal place and then you find a way to make it universal um yeah, I mean, they, uh, I, I guess I try and pull together um, uh, kind of responses that I've had or kind of observations, general observations or experiences that I've had. I mean, the songs don't generally end up about being s anybody specifically. Right. They kind of they're more about the the emotions that you experience within those situations and the kind of situations which will um prompt those emotions a specific person though is is the inspiration right um it could be specific people could be myself mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. <laughs> i mean that could be a, a very 
strong dialogue that you would have with yourself as as well um and um so yeah again coming back to that whole thing of the context that it was written and you know you've went very much in on, on yourself during that time yes um so um but it was also just with the record trying to create a, a safe space where i could kind of go into those those areas really honestly there's there's so much humanity in this record it's I, I think it's a record for someone in a place of joy and it's a record for someone in a place of pain to listen to and i remember hearing an interview with you where you talked about how you worked with uh the charity samaritans yeah and that you were doing phone work for them like at the peak of radiohead's success what did that do for you and and it seems like that strain of humanity is just something that you have fought to keep in yourself um well that's if i go trace back kind of to Please. 1986 yes so it was a year i went to um i went off to uh, do my degree up in liverpool um but it was also the year that uh i'd start we, we started with um radiohead at the beginning of that year it was on a friday at the time and then i went went up to liverpool it's where i met my uh, uh person who'd become my wife as well and also it's when i became uh, a samaritan volunteer for the first time so you've had these three kind of like crucial kind of pillars of my adult life all started then uh, and so and we all grew alongside each other. By the time that kind of Radiohead had become Radiohead and and we were starting, I mean, we got to that point where we kind of seemed to be living in the States, really, just touring here all the time. And actually, to, when I was going back to, to, to the UK, back to Oxford, um, I found that actually that, um, that complete contrast of, of actually kind of going through that process of going in and being on the phone with somebody else where you just have to focus on them it takes you out of yourself exactly and you get that that's incredible sense of connection that incredible sense of privilege privilege of somebody letting you in on that level um and yeah i think it um uh selfishly speaking i think it kind of uh, it it provided some sanity in, in a very mad period for me. In the, uh, in the film, Meeting People is Easy, Yeah, there's this remarkable shot, I'm sure you know, where the camera remains fixed on you for almost all of the song exit music. Oh. And that was a level of respect I'd never seen given to a drummer by a documentary filmmaker. And I, I've always wondered, did that, did that moment mean anything to you for that song to have the focus entirely on you and your craftsmanship on stage? Well, Grant uh, G, who, who made the film, he, um, he was with us, as you, as you imagine, a lot during that year. And he was, um, he, he, he put us at our ease. Um, and and I think he wanted to approach it from um, the point of view that actually yes this is this is a, an ensemble this is a collective of musicians here and I think that comes across yes. quite strongly in that yes. piece and you know it's not an easy watch it's not <laughs> uh, that's my favourite scene in the film is you oh <laughs> thank you yeah I, I I find myself sitting there just kind of pulling my my 
my playing technique apart when I watch it. <laughs> but that's inevitable. But um, yeah, I haven't watched actually meeting people as easy for quite a while. It's aged very well. It's quite a, it's packs quite a punch. The, the first time I ever went to London was uh, to do a television special with Paul McCartney, yeah. and this was in '97. And at the time, he was so absorbed in OK Computer. Uh, he was so into the record. He Paul asked McCartney. Paul, yeah, well, he, he was, you're, you know, at Capitol and, and I was around all Capitol executives. And this is when they had just given me the, the Walkman with the OK computer yeah. tape welded yeah. inside that could yeah. never be taken out. And Paul was saying, have you heard this? And, and just gushing about the record. And I, I thought of that this morning and I was wondering, was there ever a figure in popular music whose admiration for the work of the band really moved you and, and surprised you and inspired you? Well, I think I've just hit that moment now. You didn't know? No, I didn't know. Oh about that. man, oh, talk oh, to the people at Capitol. Mind. Oh, that's the only record Paul talked about backstage. Wow. Yeah. That that's that's just like that's huge. That's huge. It doesn't come bigger than that. I think I can finish now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe you. There must have been there must have been someone's admiration that that completely blew you away. I think um, we've been extremely lucky that we've had kind of. It's almost like mentorship from um, musicians as we've been going along. Uh, I remember in particular uh, when we were um, out touring the Benz, REM invited us out to tour with them in Europe yes. and then over in the States. And they were just incredible with us. You know, they very much kind of um, took us on board and... E you know, just by observing how how they navigated some very tricky waters, it were and 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 very open with that um, with us as well. Just felt an incredibly generous um, gesture on, on their part, and we felt very kind of lifted by that. And 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 those moments, yeah, they mean everything to you. People who have been your your idols as, you, as you're growing up for them to kind of give you that platform to take that interest in you um yeah that, that's amazing do you have a performance with that other band on an album that means the most to you um well i have to say it's probably um i would be one of the uh um pyramid song ones. pyramid song Oh, our band. Yeah, your your band. Yeah, that's oh, what I meant. Band. Oh yes, oh I meant your oh, band. Yes, with yeah. Radiohead. Was there was there a oh, song? Oh, I see. I've got you. Um, that band. Yeah, that other um, band. I meant yes. <laughs> so there are Pyramid Song has has got a very um, uh, you know I've got a very vivid uh, sense of how how um, I felt doing that one, and it was going from moving during the course of the session day from feeling absolutely hopeless and useless and thinking I'll never get my t head around the timing on this this song and uh, devoid of ideas but then actually kind of we, we kind of persevered with it I remember Tom and I sat down and we played it and played it and played it and gradually this kind of drum pattern started to emerge and it was just kind of following the pushes and pulls of Tom's playing and his vocal. Um, so yes, that's, I was a lot happier with my drumming by the end of the day than I was at the beginning <laughs> of it. Um, another track for me, which kind of really uh, sticks out in my memory is off OK Computer and that's Let Down. It's a very oh, yeah. simple drum 
part. Uh, but actually, it's just so charged with um, uh, emotion for me. I hear that that song, and I'm right back in my body recording that. And um, yeah, there, there was something that felt kind of uh, from 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 me from my drumming felt a very unguarded performance there. And um, so yeah, that one sticks out. Uh, I know we'll probably disagree on this as a band. That's actually kind of one of my favorite Radiohead tracks as well. So I, I could ask you about individual tracks all day, but I, I, I'm not going to ask you about new Radiohead music because I know you're sick of that. But I, I, I got to say, with the work you guys are doing, your stuff on this record and Ed's stuff and, and the smile, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it it's that sort of thing where it's like, oh, I don't need a new album from these guys. They're doing such interesting <laughs> stuff there. Does the extracurricular work you do outside the band feed the creativity you all share when you come back together um i hope it will yeah and that's going to be the next next process for us to to actually try and you know i mean i ideally how it will happen would be that actually we'll just get back together and play that kind of idea of of thinking you know this has got to lead to a record at the moment or this is with rehearsing for a tour or anything and I think we're, we're coming back around to that point now. Yeah. I, I know you got to run. One last question. Do, do the songs stay with you as muscle memory, or do you have to go back and retrain yourself to play these songs live? Because some of them seem so intricate to a layperson. Um, I've not had to think about that one over over the decades of us touring. Uh, but it, you're quite right, John. I'm, I've got that slight anxiety of thinking, do you know what? I'm not sure if I'll remember them all when we come back. I mean, it's last, you know, the last time we played was um, in Philadelphia in um, 2018. I was um, at the New York show. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that was a good tour. That was a really good tour. Um, so I've yet to find out whether it's still there in muscle memory. <laughs> I'm hoping it is. I hope we get to find out. Uh, <laughs> Phil Selway's beautiful new record is Strange Dance. The live record is coming out this December, and he's playing live dates now. What a thrill. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, John. Thank you. And we will be right back. Welcome back. So let's talk about death. Let's talk about dying. That is considered taboo in most social situations, and it's uh, considered entertainment death to talk about death. But it is the one thing that does unite us all, that all ideologies have in common, and most of us have the same questions. Is there a bright light at the end of a tunnel? Will my memory flash before my eyes? Is there going to be a box I have to check, or is there a CAPTCHA? What, do I have to sign something? I was raised by a mom who was a geriatric nurse, and whenever family members members had to make the transition. They often came to do it in our home. I grew up around hospice, and if you've spent time in hospice, you might already know that possibly the finest people on earth are hospice workers. Death is a non-negotiable process, and the better prepared we are for it, the less frightening a process it has to be. Now, Hadley Vlahos is a hospice nurse married to a doctor of physical therapy, and her videos became very prominent on TikTok during the COVID-19 lockdown. You might already be a fan. Her unexpected social media influencer status continued to grow as she spoke warmly, humanely, and intelligently about her work as a witness to the deaths of others. Her new book, The In-Between, 
Unforgettable Moments During Life's Final Moments is a New York Times bestseller, and it's the kind of book that should be read by everyone, at least everyone who will ever have to walk through that door. Each chapter focuses on a different patient she knew, all while weaving in her own very empowering story as a single mom on welfare who became a hospice nurse, who became a very successful author. Hadley, it's such a pleasure to welcome you to SiriusXM. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I, I find your story so inspiring. And the fact that you could take the struggles you grew up with and channel it all into love and grace and caring for people at their final moments. I know that you grew up wanting to be a writer. What was it that delayed your first book and what made you decide this would be your first book? Yeah, I had a pretty significant delay in college when I was a freshman. In between my freshman and sophomore year, I became pregnant, not married. And I had to come up with a different plan. Writing was not going to cover it to support both of us. And so I went into nursing. It's a very practical career point. Just two years of college or three years, you can get a pretty good job, a stable job that pays pretty well. And I'm very grateful for that. And through my work as a hospice nurse, I have really learned how to be the best human I think I can be. And when I started sharing their stories on social media, it became pretty clear to me that I was going to be able to find my way back to writing again. Now, you didn't set out to specialize in hospice when you first went into nursing, right? No, I actually wanted to be a labor and delivery nurse. And I was devastated when I did not get that job. And another one of my classmates did. I thought my life was over. And now I realize that that was meant to be. I did work in the float pool in the hospital. So I got to see all different types of nursing within the hospital. And then I met my husband at a nursing home. And in that nursing home is whenever I was taking care of hospice patients for the first time. I mean, I guess in a very different way, you do help people with their labor and you do help them with their delivery. Were, were you, you, you were raised in a religious household, right? I was. I was raised Episcopalian. And then I, I know from the book you began questioning some of the uh, institutional beliefs you were raised with after the sudden death of a friend. Yes, I had a friend named Taylor Haugen die at a football game in front of all of us. He was hit by two football players and his liver burst. And that was when I really just started to question things. I started asking people at church, why would this happen? I, I don't understand it. And I really started to detach from those beliefs that were the foundation of everything for me. Wow. Fascinating. I, I was raised in a completely different way where the transition to death was such a part of life and St. Francis welcoming Sister Death. And it's very rare. I later learned to be raised in a atmosphere that doesn't have a fear of death, but it seems like it's something that everyone, even those of us who are scared of talking about it, are drawn to. I mean, this was once considered a, a very taboo topic. Why do you think it is that so many folks are drawn to stories about this transition? Um, and why did so many respond to the material you were discussing in your videos? I was shocked by it at first. I didn't understand why anyone was listening at first, because when I would you know, be at social settings, people did not want to talk about my job at all. But I think that as a society, we are no longer shying away from difficult conversations in many ways. And I think people want to be informed and they want to know. And I think there's a lot of people who personally go through this process and they don't like the feeling of having no idea what's happening in their own homes with their own loved ones. 
I think you're right. Um, you do explore in the background in the book your your background and your your upbringing in the church, and then single motherhood and how some folks treated you during then. What impresses me the most is it seems that the painful experiences you endured and the doubt and the uncertainty, instead of making you a colder person, only made you more empathetic and more understanding. Is that just the way you were raised, or did you find your own caring and love and empathy becoming deeper as you got deeper into this work? I A very pivotal moment for me was whenever I was a single mom and on Medicaid welfare, and a nurse at the receptionist at the OBGYN told me or told her coworker about me, uh, people who can't afford to be parents should not be allowed to be parents. And I had this fear of medical professionals just feeling inadequate. And that was extra hard for me. And I remember thinking, because I was trying to get into the nursing program, I will be a nurse and I will make sure that no patient under my care ever feels like this. I will make sure that no one ever feels like I do right now. And I have replayed that moment in my head so many times and made sure that no one feels like that. Can you walk our listeners through what the the general process is for you when you first enter a new house of a new patient? Um, having been through this several times in my life, both with my mom as a, as a nurse in the field and then having hospice workers in the house, um, I would imagine everyone has their own approach, but I would imagine every different house, no matter who lives there, you experience a lot of the same things. Yeah. When we first uh, enter the home, it can be a little bit overwhelming, to be honest, whenever you're first coming on to hospice. I feel like it's a completely different. It's it's a change to have people in your home or sometimes you're just getting out of the hospital and you're getting this life changing news. And all of a sudden we're in your home and we're throwing medications at you and equipment. And I try to make things as simple as possible. And I try to always remind my patients and their families, you are in the driver's seat now. I'm not going to force you to do anything that you don't want to do. So many people who have chronic illness have been in this mindset of my doctor says I need a test. I have to be there Tuesday at 12. If I had lunch plans, now I don't. Or I need to do this. And now I have the surgery. And now I have chemo or whatever it is. And that's hard to get out of that feeling of being guided by someone else. And so I always try to let them know you're in the driver's seat now. I'm just here to help you do whatever you want to do. You cover in the book your time caring for 11 different patients. You've changed the, the, their names, of course, and some of the medical information. Um, and your mother-in-law, who died about uh, five years ago. And I'd, I'd like to ask, they're, they're all very moving stories. They're all very similar and yet very distinct. How did you choose the 11 souls that you cared for to document in your book? That was a hard process for me. There were a couple of people that could not not be in the book, such as I call Carl and Sue. These are patients I took care of for more than six months, and I became extremely close to them. So they had to be in it. But then after that, I looked at my own journey and how I went from this brand new hospice nurse, so had to put the first patient death in there, to this more experienced hospice nurse that was much more confident in not only my skills, but also who I am as a person and what I believe in. And as I mapped all of those changes, it became pretty clear which patients helped get me there. 
I'd like to ask you about Carl, because that's one of my favorite stories in your book. One thing that you have to encounter, of course, is these folks who are experiencing the greatest lack of control they will ever experience facing the end of this life. And then suddenly for some of them, there's this strange new person in their house and they feel even less control at first. Carl seems like a guy who was very resistant to hospice care at first. How were you able to break through to him and and get him to trust you? Yeah, he did not want us in his house at all. He wanted to watch his sports and be left alone. And the way I was able to get him to take down those walls a little bit was to put myself on his level, if not lower than him, and have him teach me things. He taught me about sports. He taught me about news. And I think whenever you take less of an authoritarian approach and you really show them like I'm here as a friend and you can also help me. I think that it becomes less of a hostile environment. Can I ask you about the woman who who never questioned her faith until she was finally in hospice? Of course. Yeah, that was who I call Sue. And she was raised Catholic and she just was what you would consider to be a model Catholic. She went to church and she was very involved. And she also lost her husband at a a very young age after they had had four kids very young. He died in war. And whenever she was near the end of her life, she had an episode, what we call a COPD exacerbation, which is where she thought that she was dying because she could not get in any air. And at the time I thought she was dying too. And she told me after we got it under control with medications and oxygen that she thought that she was about to die and she questioned her beliefs for the first time in her life. And I said, I, I think that that's more normal than you think it is. I think that there's a lot of people that do that, that you have this faith all your life. And then when it comes down to it and you're looking death in the eye, you say, what if? What if there is nothing? And that's scary, of course. And then soon after, she had another COPD exacerbation and her long deceased husband, she saw him and she said he came to get her and she was not scared. He, she felt confident that they were going into the afterlife together and nothing had changed Otherwise, it was the exact same symptoms as she had had last time, and she was actually dying this time. And the only difference was that her husband was there, and it was beautiful to witness. That gave her the faith that her religion did not give her. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back. How common is it, Hadley, for people in the final moments or hours to begin seeing visions of their late loved ones? I've heard this story so many times that folks really do begin speaking to them. They do. It's definitely fascinating. I would say about 30% of my patients will tell me that they are seeing deceased loved ones. 30% will not, and about 30% are not able to tell me either way. 
So they're in a coma or they're very advanced in dementia or Alzheimer's, so they wouldn't be able to tell me if they did. But also those same patients, sometimes you'll see them reaching up or trying to like touch the air and you wonder, but I don't know. Really? Yeah, that was my dad. He kept my mom, not so much, but my father kept reaching up and trying to grab something right over the bed and smiling while he did it every time. Yeah. And it's that same feeling of peace that I see whenever patients are also talking to deceased loved ones. So I don't have any proof that that's what they're seeing, but that's what I think. No, but those are the beautiful moments that, I mean, we're not prepared for the death, but in many cases, people are not prepared for the beauty. And I I think a lot of loved ones are also not prepared for how it feels for your loved one to die, but they're also not prepared for how it feels to finally have their disease die, to know that the disease is not there. And for so many loved ones, it's like they also lose the dread, the dread of feeling helpless day in and day out to do anything. And once the death finally occurs, the dread is gone and they can just grieve with love. Yeah. And with Alzheimer's and dementia, there's definitely that anticipatory grief where people will grieve the loss of the person that they knew long before their bodies actually die. And that's very difficult because society doesn't really acknowledge that form of grief. I'm curious, how often do loved ones say things to you like, I wish you had known them before this. I wish you had known them when they were still who they really were. Do you ever find that families just don't want to accept the dying patient as their loved one? They want you to know about the person they really were? Very often. It's it's extremely rare that people don't say that. Um, it, whenever people uh, see traits in me that they think that is similar to that loved one, such as if the patient was a nurse. I I hear that so often. They're like, oh, I just wish you would have known her, whatever she was her. Y'all would have just loved talking about this. Yeah. And that person needs to be loved for who they are right now. Can I ask you about the, um, the young patient you cared for who realized at a very premature age for hospice that she had spent too much of her time worrying about what other people thought that was a really tough one for me to to come to terms with but a patient was reviewing her life and she was dying of lung cancer of an unknown cause so she was what we consider to be the picture of health and we don't know why she had lung cancer and why she was on hospice because of it but she shared with me that she had spent too much of her life on the treadmill and counting calories and not spending time with friends or building relationships. And it was extremely eye-opening for me and it was transformative in my own life. And the sad part is, is that ultimately she did die alone without anyone there with her. And the only positive I can take from it is that her story has touched millions and millions and millions of people. And I personally believe that she is happy about that. What's the hardest part of this job? I would actually say, I think most people would think the hardest part of the job is when I lose patients. But I think the hardest part of the job is when you're short staffed and you cannot adequately care for the patients that you have. We have a nursing shortage in almost every field in this country, don't we? And it's not really talked about in the media. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's harder to have patients in front of you that you know are not being cared for as well as they should than to deal with a patient death. I'd like to ask you, there's this real growing movement um, emphasizing that death acceptance is what they call it and how important it is to, to plan in advance. And I think all too often advanced planning just means buying the casket, picking out the casket, buying the plot of land, figuring out who gets invited to the funeral, how you'll announce it, etc. But those seem to be more procedural than actually facing the end itself. And uh, how should people, how should our listeners think about facing their own mortality? And, and what steps should people take when they are preparing for life's end? Because it seems in your book, there really are patterns that keep being repeated. Yeah, I think the procedural is important, making sure that people know your wishes, because I have seen more times than not where people don't know what their loved one's wishes are and they go wow. back and forth. And that's not a fun burden to leave for your loved ones. So there is that part of it. But also, I think people need to start thinking about the end more frequently, like now. Um, I think every single morning, if today is my last day, will I be happy with the life that I lived? Will I be happy with how I spent today with it being my last day? And every single morning, I feel a renewed sense for life and accomplishing what I want to because of that. I, I guess the basic decisions people have to face are, are burial or cremation, donate organs, DNRs. Yes. And then if they would want to be on life support or not and in what uh, situation, those are all very important. I'd like to ask you about some of the myths of hospice that you encounter. Um, a lot of people seem to think that hospice is only for people who are just about to die. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, people definitely usually think that it is just, oh, OK, someone's going on hospice. It's going to be any day now. But reality, it's six months or less. And the closer we can get to that six months, the better, because we get to know them very well and we can make sure they're comfortable for as long as possible. But it's not an exact science. People definitely stay in hospice for longer than six months. I was just talking about Jimmy Carter and he's been in hospice for seven months. That's right. My father was a year, actually, um, and, and my mother was longer than six months as well. It, it does happen. Has President Carter's very public announcement of hospice and then being seen in public last week for the first time in seven months ah. since his announcement, what kind of effect does that have on your line of work? Is it something that has inspired people or has made the process less mystifying? I think it's positive that they continue to cover that he has been in it for so long, hospice that is, uh, so that people can understand that it is not just, you know, those last few days, which is normally what you think of. Um, I think it's wonderful. And whenever you hear him talk about it, he describes just being at home with his wife and not having to go back to the hospital. And those are all the positives that we're always talking about. And also, um, not every patient sees a light at the end of a tunnel, right? I mean, you mentioned that it's more frequent that they actually see loved ones than this mythical light at the end of the tunnel we're fed by Hollywood is the common experience. Yeah, I've never had anyone see a light at the end of the tunnel. Never once? No. <laughs> so I'd like to ask about the title of the book. Um, it's very, very beautiful. When did you arrive on that, the in-between? It's actually always been the in-between, and that is because I say, and I don't know if I got this from someone or I came to it on my own, that I 
sit with people in the in-between when they're in between this world and whatever comes next. And as I wrote it, it started to take on all these other little meanings too. Whenever I was talking about my own beliefs in an afterlife and how I dealt with life, I realized that that word was coming up a lot. And I think it was meant to be. Have you ever cared for a loved one or a relative in your professional capacity? My mother-in-law, she was on hospice. Yeah. And she had a glioblastoma and I'm not actually allowed to be her assigned nurse and charge insurance for it, but I was definitely there on a off the clock kind of thing. And I am, I think being in a patient's, family's role and seeing what the other side is like was very important for me. And I think I'm a better hospice nurse because of it. Do you think that um, patients who are facing hospice should um, go through the what they call the five wishes document? I think five wishes is wonderful. And I think it is incredibly informative for people. And it's very easy to understand and to go through what you think. Can you unpack what it is for folks who've never had the pleasure? Yeah, Five Wishes is this like tiny pamphlet and it'll say if you're in this situation such as you are at the end of your life naturally and your heart were to stop naturally, would you want people to intervene? Would you want to be brought back to life? That's CPR. Okay, if you are brought back to life, do you want mechanical ventilation? And it walks you through all of these steps and you just check the boxes. It's very easy to do, and it's a legal document in almost every state. Um, I guess the million-dollar question I have to ask is, after all this this death that you have devoted your life to, what is the most important thing to you that you have learned from your hospice patients? I think the most important thing I've learned from them is the belief that it's not the end. I don't think that whenever we die, nothing happens. And that's really helped me to feel more at peace and less scared of death. If people want to volunteer to help with hospice services, what do you recommend they do? Yeah, every hospice company should have a volunteer program. So I would just call whoever's closest to you. And there is a very big need for volunteers in every company I ever worked with. And you don't have to have medical background. That's what a lot of people think, that you have to have a medical background. But most of the time, people just need someone to sit there with their loved ones so that they can go get groceries and the patient is not alone. And you just sit there with them and talk to them. Yeah. And my God, what a difference it makes for the loved one to be able to get out of the house and run some errands for a few hours. It it so often gives them the strength to return to the very grueling experience they have to live through. Oh, yeah, absolutely. People would be shocked at how much it can refresh you to just go get groceries by yourself. I want to thank you so much for joining us and for all you do and for writing this book. Hadley Vlahos is the author. The book is The In-Between, Unforgettable Moments During Life's Final Moments. Congratulations on all your great reviews and on becoming a TikTok superstar for the most unlikely of humanitarian causes. It's really wonderful to see. Best of luck to you and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.